0: Hi, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. The UN Conference on Climate Change wraps up tomorrow, and I don't think they fixed climate change. But if you listen to the Jane Goodall interview from last week, you know how important it is not to lose hope and fall into the doom and gloom of climate change. Which is why we wanted to play you this interview with Amitabh Ghosh. He's got a new book out now called The Nutmeg's Curse that does touch on climate change, but the one we're about to hear is from 2019. It's about his book Gun Island. In it, Ghosh uses an old Bengali myth to frame a story about climate change and give it perspective. He told NPR's Ari Shapiro that he had to dig far back because he found modern literature ill-equipped to talk
1: about the big calamities of the day. When we have these catastrophes unfolding around us, we don't seem to be able to even imaginatively grapple with what's in front of us.
0: But myths are big enough to really capture the enormity of what's ahead. Here's the interview.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, treachery, and survival at the edge of the world by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. The author Amitav Ghosh often sets his books at the blurry boundary between land and water. His latest novel stops in several of those places, from mangrove islands on the border of India and Bangladesh to the canals of Venice, Italy. The book is called Gun Island. It's a modern retelling of a Bengali myth that Amitav Ghosh grew up with. He uses this ancient story to reflect on contemporary themes of climate change and migration. The goddess at the center of this myth is named Monisha Devi. She's not just a goddess. She's also a sort of interpreter connecting humans to the natural world.
1: She is the goddess of snakes and all poisonous things. And the stories around her all revolve around her curious kind of battle with this figure called the merchant. You know, his name Mm -hmm. is actually Chad Shodagar, or the Merchant Chand. That's his name in Bengali. Chad Shodagar in Bengali, yes. And there's this sort of conflict between them, and she wants him to become her devotee, and he won't. And she sends all these kinds of terrible calamities upon him, droughts and famines and great waves. And finally, he flees uh, overseas, and she pursues him overseas. And finally, he comes back, and he sort of, uh, you know, capitulates. But it's an amazing story in the in the sense that I think it uh, posits, as it were, or it conceptualizes a conflict between the profit motive and uh, nature, you know,
3: because the merchant wants to make money and the goddess is sending these natural phenomena to try to get him to pay attention.
1: That's right. That's exactly it. I mean that's it. She 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 wants him to pay attention to the world around him to the natural world uh, around him. So it's a metaphor for that you might say. So, you know, it's clear that this basic conflict uh, was perfectly well understood by, you know, our distant ancestors.
3: When did it occur to you as an adult author that the story you had known as a child actually has really strong connections with what we are seeing today in the change in climate. I mean, apocalyptic weather, animals in unfamiliar places, kind of a world turned upside down.
1: Well, you know, I wrote this book, uh, The Great Derangement, which is about, uh, you know, literature and climate change. It's a nonfiction book. It's nonfiction, yes. It's about why climate change is so difficult for modern writers and for modern literature. And at the end of uh, writing that book, I decided that uh, I needed to read more pre-modern literatures. And, uh, you know, there it was. I was—I suddenly saw it through new eyes. I realized that what these old legends were about were exactly what we are living through today. You know, catastrophic uh, floods, uh, droughts, famines, storms. So, it's like
3: the goddess got your attention.
1: <laughs> she certainly got my attention, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, it you know, what really struck me, what was very moving to me is that In those times, they could address these issues so much more directly than we can today. Hmm. At that time, people could respond. You know, they could create paintings, they could create buildings. I mean, in Venice, uh, uh, the Basilica of Santa Maria della Salute, which is its greatest landmark, is actually a commemoration of a great catastrophe, uh, you know, of the plague. When we have these catastrophes unfolding around us, we don't seem to be able to even imaginatively grapple with what's in front of us.
3: Would you read a section of the book that kind of talks about the power and importance of stories? This is on page 141.
1: Yes. At that time, people recognized that stories could tap into dimensions that were beyond the ordinary, beyond the human even. They knew that only through stories was it possible to enter the most inward mysteries of our existence, where nothing that is really important can be proven to exist, like love or loyalty or even the faculty that makes us turn around when we feel the gaze of a stranger or an animal. Only through stories can invisible or inarticulate or silent beings speak to us. It's they who allow the past to reach out to us. Do you think you're able to
3: do things through fiction—the stories that you're telling in books like this—that nonfiction, that journalism, that research can't accomplish?
1: Well, I kind of have to believe that, don't I? Because I'm a—it's <laughs> your chosen field, right? <laughs> yes, I'm a—I'm a writer of fiction. I live in fiction. It's my world. It's my life's work. But yes, I do believe that. I do believe that fiction allows us to look at the world in a different way. And I think that is really the crisis of contemporary fiction, that it finds itself at this catastrophic time for humanity. It finds itself unable to look at the reality around us. The
3: characters in your book explore a tension between science and spirituality.
1: Uh, Do you feel
3: like you're doing the same thing here by talking about climate change in the context of myths and goddesses?
1: Well, it's certainly very different from talking about climate change in the within the framework of science, which is right. or technology, yeah. which is what we normally get. But let's face it, you know, I mean, uh, science and technology, climate scientists have played a very, very important part in alerting us to what's going on in the world. We owe them a great debt. But in a way, that framing of what's happening today has also proved its own inadequacy, you know. Uh, we can see that in a way we have to rise up in our hearts to appreciate uh, the enormity of the changes that are upon us. I mean, all the science communication in the world hasn't got us uh, moving anywhere, really. Mm. Uh, So I I do think that, you know, we have to be able to open up those parts of our lives or those parts of our minds or those parts of our consciousnesses that can actually accommodate different ways of thinking about the world. So Uh, I'm not really thinking about uh, spirituality or goddesses or anything. What I'm really trying to confront, if you like, is the uncanny. You know, the uncanny in the world around us, how it exists around us, and the ways in which uh, we relate to it. How do you define the uncanny? Well I'll give you an example you know uh, you'll remember that there's a chapter in the in the book that's set in Los Angeles uh, in a museum and suddenly there's a wildfire that advances towards this museum and uh, you may remember that something like that did happen uh, I think it was in 2017 the the Getty Museum suddenly had uh, a wildfire racing towards it they had yeah. to evacuate and so on but you know the really weird thing is that I had I, I wrote the chapter 6 months before it happened Wait really Yeah it was so uncanny. And you said it at the Getty Museum. I didn't name it, but yeah, that that was what, what was in my head. A couple of friends had read the manuscript and they wrote to me and said, how does this feel? And I could only say to them that I feel completely shaken. Yeah. Uh, you know, because to see things that you've seen in your mind sort of playing out in real life. It's just so disturbing, you know. But that is the world that we are in. I mean, uh, the, the world of fact is outrunning the world of fiction. Amitav Ghosh, thank you for talking with us. Thank you so much, Ari. It's been a great pleasure. His
3: new novel is called Gun Island.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com
0: NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.